So there was this Christian family. They lived next door to a family that was not a Christian family. In fact, this family that they lived next door to was anything but Christian. This family uh, had children that had run afoul of the law. They were constantly fighting and bickering. The police were called to their house on several occasions. One day, the, the girl, the daughter in the Christian home, came home and told her dad that she had heard that the neighbors were getting a divorce. And dad said, yes, as he watched his favorite team score a touchdown. And he said, oh, divorce, well, that's too bad. And so the daughter went in the kitchen and recited the same story to her mother, to which her mother replied, well, let that be a lesson to you. That's what happens when you don't have God in your life. Well, the family did get a divorce. They ended up moving. Another family moved in. They didn't really go to church. They weren't necessarily Christians, but they never caused any problems. They never smoked or cussed or, or, or did anything that was caused a commotion. And the Christian family lived happily ever after. Now, it's just a story, but it's one that's true to life for many people. Is that when it comes to evangelism, we don't necessarily even know who our neighbors are, nor do we feel comfortable reaching out to them, but rather... Maybe we look down our nose instead of seeking to show Jesus to them. Maybe we think it's better and our life will be more comfortable and convenient if they were just out of our lives. We talk about evangelism and there are no shortages of books and blogs and podcasts and you know, whatever seminars on the topic. We understand that it is a failure in a lot of our churches and that a lot of individual Christians are not living up to this responsibility. We got all that, right? If you know, we had a Christian report card under evangelism, we get an F. We know that, right? We don't need to be guilted into understanding that you know, the number one mission of the church is oftentimes the great omission rather than the great commission, right? We get it. It's kind of like saying, well, we need a cure for cancer. Sure we do. We all know that. We all understand that. So it's like I'm Captain Obvious standing up here stating the obvious that we need to do something. But I don't think we need more blogs and seminars and podcasts and things like that. I don't think we need to be guilted any longer. I think what we need to do is maybe refresh our passion. Maybe it just really starts with a, with a heart that is tearful, with eyes that are wet. Because you will never reach out to those around you who are lost if you don't have a passion first for the lost. This morning we talked about Jesus being a seeker. And as we have done all year and will continue to do all year, we're going to talk about an attribute of Jesus on Sunday morning and then apply that attribute to us on Sunday night. And so as we talked about Jesus being a seeker this morning, we talk about us being a seeker tonight. But what does that look like? What does it look like to be a seeker? Well, I want you to turn to Romans chapter 9. In Romans chapter 9, beginning in verse 1, it reads like this. Paul is writing here and he says, I am telling the truth in Christ. I am not lying. My conscience testifies with me in the Holy Spirit that I have great sorrow and unceasing grief in my heart. For I could wish that I myself were accursed, separated from Christ for the sake of my brethren, my kinsmen according to the flesh, who are Israelites, to whom belongs the adoption as sons and the glory and the covenants and the giving of the law and the temple service and the promises, 
whose are the fathers and from whom is the Christ according to the flesh, who is over all, God blessed forever. Amen. Now granted, this is one of those passages that you have to read a couple of times. You read it once and you go, okay, wait a minute. And you read it again, you go, okay, Paul, are you serious here? I mean, notice what he says. For I could wish that I myself were accursed, separated from Christ for the sake of my brethren. I don't know about you, but I I care about the lost. I want to see as many people come to Christ as possible. Do I want to trade my salvation and put myself in their shoes? I, I wouldn't go that far. Paul apparently would. But surely he can't be serious, right? Surely Paul's not really serious about that. Well, he says, I'm not lying. He says, I'm telling the truth. Paul knew where he came from. He knew that he had stood on the brink of hell. Then he had that chance encounter with Jesus on the road to Damascus. Paul knew where he had been and where he'd come from and where he was going. And because of that, it changed his perspective. The water baptism plucked from the fires of hell he, above all, should have been the most passionate about the lost, and he was. But we're in the same boat, right? We have been plucked from the fires of hell. We, we of all people, should understand grace and mercy and love and forgiveness. We should understand what it means to be rescued. We give people a front row seat to the grace and mercy of Jesus. The context of Paul's words here in Romans 9 is the Jewish rejection of the Messiah. And I want you to notice, Paul doesn't lash out in anger. This isn't outrage. It's sorrow. Paul is brokenhearted over the fact that so many people are missing out on salvation. So much so that he states that he wishes that he were accursed, separated from Christ for the sake of the brethren. The words that Paul used here for accursed is the word anathema. It's a pretty strong word, a powerful word. If something were an anathema, it meant that it was reserved for utter destruction. It was devoted to utter destruction. When in the Old Testament, you go back to Joshua, Deuteronomy, when the Israelites would take over a Gentile nation, the stuff that was left there was left for utter destruction because it was polluted. That's anathema. That's the concept anyway. Those who tried to lure Israel away from worshiping the one true God were condemned to utter destruction. Same concept. So Paul uses this very vivid language to show the depth and breadth of his passion and his sorrow. For the lost. Let me ask you this. Why are people not getting saved? Now when we think about our, our failings in the area of evangelism, why are people not getting saved? And you know, there could be a variety of answers to that question. But I can tell you this. One thing for certain, one of the reasons for certain why people are not getting saved is because of my tearless heart and my dry eyes. Forget you for a moment. I'm not talking to you. I'm talking to me. My tearless heart and my dry eyes is one of the reasons why people are not getting saved. One of the reasons people are not coming to Christ starts with the fact that my heart is not always broken, that I don't always weep for the lost. And no one is ever going to come to Christ through my efforts if I don't first see them as someone who needs rescuing, who is destined to spend eternity apart from Jesus. Sadly, sadly, I'm not the only one. 
I don't know, maybe you could make that claim as well. You know, social media has opened up some doors that allow us to connect with people that maybe we hadn't connected with in a long time. It's allowed us to, you know, to maybe do some things, and our world has been open, but it's also ruining our world. I mean, let's face it, it is in a lot of ways. Twitter is ruining the world in a lot of ways. So much passion that Christians have for, for so many things in the world, and they voice that passion on social media through a keyboard. And sadly, their passion sometimes presents itself in a way that is unchristlike. There are many Christians who would rather spit venom, right? They're concerned about our world, and rightfully so. I mean, we all are. They are angry, and they're so angry about the things that are happening in the world that are ungodly that they react in ungodly ways. They don't like that, that, that our nation seems to be turning its back on God and removing Him from the private sector and moving him from the public square. They don't like the fact that, that people are, are shoving immorality down our throats and so they react in anger and react in ways that are unrighteous. And sad thing to see because I think if we had that much passion for the lost, where could we be? Rather than mocking and ridiculing, how about if we had a heart that was welling up eyes that were wet what if we had as much passion for those around us who were the walking dead I mean if not us then who right if we're not the ones sharing it then who's going to you know the person may forfeit the opportunity to come to Christ but at least we gave them that opportunity right Jesus prayed for forgiveness for those who were driving the nails do we weep for the condition of our nation do we do we mourn and does that mourning motivate us to try to change hearts? We weep and we mourn because there are so many who have become slaves to the real enemy. And when we despise them rather than seeking to rescue them, we become no better than the enemy we're fighting against, right? I can vividly remember sitting in an elders meeting many years ago at another church that I was working with. And this was a church that uh, they still had two gospel meetings every year. A lot of churches still do that, right? They have one in the spring and one in the fall. And this particular church was one of those. They had a gospel meeting every spring and every fall. And the raised, are we really putting our money in a good place by having these gospel meetings? Because we were spending quite a bit of money to bring in a speaker. And, and, all, and at the end of the day, that it didn't really give us much return on our investment. Not a lot of people showed up. And I remember one gentleman in the meeting say, well, if we would attend the gospel meetings of the other churches around us, they would probably come to ours. And I thought, but is that really the purpose of a gospel meeting? I mean, correct me if I'm wrong, but I thought a gospel meeting, you had those so that you could reach people in your community with the gospel, right? And finally, one of our wise old elders spoke up and he said, how many of you in this room went out and beat the bushes before our gospel meeting, inviting others. And everybody did this. He said, well, I'll, I'll speak. He said, I didn't. And therefore, we need to have another gospel meeting until we're all willing to put forth the effort to at least try to invite people to come and hear the gospel. And we didn't. 
We use that money to advertise on the radio, to do some evangelism in other forms. But those wise words by that wise elder go beyond just a gospel meeting concept. What are we doing here? I mean, it's a valid question, right? As of the church, what are we doing? What are we doing here and why are we doing it? What is our purpose? What is our passion? It's the same question I asked of IHOP a couple of years ago. Remember that? When they got away from pancakes and changed their name to IHOP, the International House of Burgers. What are you doing? You're a pancake establishment. Stick to what you're good at, right? Let Burger King and McDonald's and Whataburger do that. You need to stick with pancakes. It's International House of Pancakes. Do what you're good at. We lose our focus so easily, right? And we, we, we tend to, to zero in on other things. And the church can do that as well. We spend so much time on the subtopics and the subplots. And certainly there is a place for that. But we miss the biggest thing. We forget our purpose. It's International House of Souls, right? Not International House of Subtopics and Subplots. I want you to notice what is written in Hebrews 5, 7. It says, In the days of his flesh... He offered up both prayers and supplications with loud crying and tears to the one able to save him from death, and he was heard because of his piety. The Greek here for crying is eskuros courage, and it means strong or mighty outcries of desire. In other words, Jesus was weeping over sin and the toll it had taken on humanity. He was rocked to the core over what sin had done to mankind. And you think of what must have been running through his mind as they tried him in a kangaroo court, as they ripped the flesh from his body and these whippings, as they mocked and ridiculed him and placed the crown of thorns on his head and attached him to a cross. He must have been thinking, this is why I must die. Sin motivated all of it. Sin was behind Judas betraying him. Sin was behind Peter denying him. Sin was behind the Jews rejecting him. Sin was behind all of it. It was behind him dying for them. And it's because of sin and its devastating consequences that our Lord commissioned us to seek and save the lost, right? The Great Commission is his great rescue operation. It's up to us to carry it out. But do we truly weep? Do we truly mourn? Do we truly cry out for the lost? Does the sinful state of others cause us to mourn? And do we see the sinner as an enemy or as a victim? I think these are pertinent questions as it pertains to Jesus' mission. Because if we do not have a deep sense of sorrow for those who are without a Savior, we will never go to them. Because evangelism starts with a broken heart and wet eyes. But many of us look like, many of us look at evangelism like it's higher math, right? Like it's calculus. I mean, where do we even start? I mean, we look at it and we understand the problem. We know that we need to do it. But I mean, where do we even begin? Well, you can turn to Acts chapter 26. There you find Paul in hot water. He's having to defend himself in front of the king. Paul had appealed his case before Rome, and therefore all judicial proceedings had stopped, so he didn't have to say anything. But he decided to make a defense because he saw it as an opportunity to preach the gospel in front of a very distinguished group of people. Paul's speech outlined his life as a Pharisee, his life as a persecutor of Christians, his life as a, as a missionary, as one uh, who put his life on the line in order to preach the gospel. He discussed the, the suffering and the resurrection of Jesus. I mean, he 
he essentially preached the gospel to these folks. And notice verse 27. Paul asked, King Agrippa, do you believe the prophets? I know you do, he says. Now, this is a loaded question, because if the king said to Paul, no, I don't believe the prophets, he would have respect among the Jewish people. But if he had said, yes, I believe the prophets, then you know the next question Paul's going to ask him. Okay, so do you believe that Jesus is the one that they talked about? But notice the calculated answer. In a short time, you will persuade me to become a Christian. We've talked about this before, but I think this is really important. Notice Paul's strategy. My life before Christ, how I came to Christ, and my life after coming to Christ. Now there's details to that that are a little more complex, but that's it, right? My life before Christ, how I came to Christ, my life after Christ. We can use this same strategy. That this is a very practical way in order to share the gospel with someone. What about your life before Christ is relatable? I can't tell you how many people have come up to me and said, well, I know you grew up, grew up Catholic. I, I have a friend that could you study with them? Could you talk with them? Use your experience. Use your upbringing, perhaps. When sharing the gospel with someone, find that common ground. Talk about the difference in your life now that you became a Christian. And why did you obey the gospel? What prompted that decision? Why did you decide to do that? What went into that decision? Did you struggle with that decision? Use your conversion experience like Paul did to help others see their need for Jesus. And then how is your life different now? What has changed? What's different? How are things different now that you have Christ in your life? Paul often did that. He often spoke about how he was the very opposite of what he used to be. That he went from a persecutor to a proclaimer. And that doesn't happen without a life-changing encounter with Jesus. In other words, Paul shared his story. He shared his story, and it, it is perhaps the greatest conversion story of all time, right? But they're all great. All conversion stories are great. Yours is great. Mine is great. They're all great because they all display the miraculous power of the gospel to change lives. I think in terms of the gospel message, we could sum up our response this way. Apply it, live it, and share it. When you obey the gospel, that's what you do. You apply it, you live it, and you share it, right? Yeah, we talked about Luke chapter 19 this morning and Zacchaeus. Let's go a little further. So turn to Luke chapter 19. And here we find Jesus looking out over the city of Jerusalem. As he assessed the grim condition of the inhabitants of this great city, he weeps. Actually, our English language doesn't do it justice here. The word that is used is clio, and this is a word that refers to loud wailing. Jesus didn't just shed a tear. He wailed. He wailed out loud. If only the citizens of Jerusalem could know the things that make for peace, if only they would have recognized the Messiah standing right in front of them, they could have known the true meaning of peace. As a result, they had to endure destruction. And through his tears, Jesus said, for the days will come upon you, this is verse 43, for the days will come upon you when your enemies will throw up a barricade against you and surround you and hem you in on every side and they will level you to the ground and your children within you. They will not leave in you one stone upon another 
because you did not recognize the time of your visitation. Now, this tragic prophecy was fulfilled less than 40 years later when the Roman armies overtook the city and 600,000 Jews were slain and 1,000 more were taken captive and all of it could have been avoided, right? God had come to Jerusalem in the person of Jesus Christ, but the city rejected him and they paid a terrible price for their missed opportunity. And I know that many of you weep for the condition of the world around you. I know you find it sad that our world seems to be tanking. I know it's easy to be all doom and gloom about the things that are going on around us. It's even easy to get outraged by the things that we witness. But notice that Jesus doesn't start with throwing darts. He doesn't, he doesn't uh, you know, spit venom. He doesn't begin with vicious personal attacks. He weeps. He weeps over the city because it didn't have to be this way. It didn't have to be this way. They could have known the things that make for peace. And it should concern us when, when the Lord's will is ignored. It should concern us when people turn their backs on God or thumb their nose at God. It should concern us when immorality is being propped up as something that is good and righteous. But we also mustn't forget that souls are at stake here. And at the end of the day, that's what this is all about. There are many living in sin who don't know the things that make for peace. And we think that they should know those things. We think that they should understand those things and understand the truth, but they just don't. And if we don't go to them, who will? And they may forfeit the opportunity, but at least we gave them the opportunity, right? Again, remember Jesus prayed for forgiveness while hanging on a cross. So let me ask you this, where is your Jerusalem? Well, look around you when you walk out the door. Because that's it. That's your Jerusalem. And we talk about changing the world by sending millions of dollars to you know, some foreign country so they can build an orphanage or a preaching school. Folks, just concentrate on your little space. Each one reach one. It's not always some grandiose measure. Sometimes, many times, it's just paying attention to the little opportunities that come up in your life. And they do, over and over again. Paying attention to them and trying to do your due diligence to take advantage of them. Making a difference in our own little Jerusalem. Seeking to carry out God's rescue operation. As we said this morning, we need to look at the lost as those who are in need of the things that make for peace, and we need to see ourselves as those who can end their search. Every man that goes to a prostitute is looking for God. We talked about that this morning. So many are seeking fulfillment and satisfaction in things that don't fulfill and don't satisfy, and so we can at least try and help to end their search. There's a hole in so many souls and it's a God-shaped hole. And what are we going to do to fill it? That's my challenge to you this week as you go out, seek as Jesus did. Present the gospel. Tell your story. Find some common ground and then use that as a platform to show them Christ.
You have a need tonight that we can help you with? Maybe you need to get back on track? We'd love to help you. This is a family that cares about you. Don't leave here tonight without being right with God.